You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is now a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle or me at leadersandlegends.net. Our guests today are Chris Lefebvre. He's the curator of the Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library. And our other guest is Kip Tu. This is his third appearance on the Leaders and Legends podcast. He is on the board of the Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library. And thank you, Kip, for putting this together. It was something we talked about for quite a while, and I'm excited to talk to you both. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for having us. I feel intimidated. Kip is an actual leader and legend, so... I- <laughs> Times three. Yeah, times three. We need to do a Kip 2 podcast, just turn it into a roast. Yeah. Let's go on. Let's talk about Kurt Vonnegut. (laughs) Think we could find anyone to appear? Yeah, I'm afraid you'd find more than one. Yeah, I I knew you were going to dodge the subject, but that was immediate. (laughs) Let's let's drop this right now. (laughs) Let's Let's start with you, Chris. Let's start at the bait with the basics. How did you find out about Kurt Vonnegut, and what was the first of his books that you read? Um, you know, I was, I was, um, an undergraduate at Ball State University in Muncie, uh, which is the Harvard of Muncie. And, um, <laughs> and I was playing bass in a rock band. So, you know, I, I, I was really big into reading when I was younger and, and you don't read for pleasure as much when you're in college. Uh, at least I didn't, but we had this, uh, saintly gentleman who was living in our house was the only one not in the band. And he would he would very kindly not complain when we'd plug in at two in the morning on a Tuesday and just mm-hmm. blow his ears out. Um, so I, I trusted his judgment. Uh, so he he loaned me Breakfast of Champions, and I remember taking that home and thinking this is a very very wild experience to read this book when you turn to page five and you see uh, the drawing of the asterisk. And I can I can I can change that to the proper term if I need to. Um, but it was it was it was pretty wild to see a book like that written by a fifty year old who uh, who seemed comfortable calling out the nonsense that I saw in society, and um, so that that definitely turned me on to it. And then uh, a couple of years later, I'm living in Chicago uh, as the economy is just uh, collapsing. And early two thousands or oh yeah, early two thousand seven, mm-hmm. um, or late late two thousand seven, and I, I yeah, I just remember uh, right around the time I officially didn't have money to leave the house, I just had a library card, and I, I rented Cat's Cradle from the library, and I and I it, I can't even begin to exaggerate this that it was this funny book about subject matters that aren't funny at all. And there was nothing funny about seven guys living in an apartment. I think three of us were employed full time. <laughs> and the other four were like cobbling together. A li- I was playing in a bluegrass band and that was honestly one of the more economically rewarding <laughs> situations. Yeah, about a hundred dollars a month and free mac and cheese was one of my major <laughs> capitalistic accomplishments at the time. And I, and I remember reading cat's cradle, which is a funny book about religion, weaponry and the end of the world and how like, it's kind of somebody's fault. It's kind of not somebody's fault. <laughs> Um, there was just something really beautiful and funny about that. So that, that made me a Vonnegut fanatic. I wanted to read everything he ever wrote. Um, I found myself in Indianapolis a couple of years later due to, due to some family health problems, uh, for my father. I was doing my master's in library science at IUPUI. And mm. one night at Nikki Blaine's, we're all sitting around complaining about our lot in life. And, uh, 
And I said, yeah, you know, I'll probably move on uh, uh, to another city if, unless Indianapolis comes up with some kind of Vonnegut library. <laughs> it was maybe a month or two later when I got an email from a friend saying, hey, you have to eat your words. You're going to live in Indianapolis for the rest of your life. It's <laughs> like, you got to be kidding me. It's like, sure enough, I ran down there and... Um, and that was when I met Julia Whitehead, and I said, you can have all my free time if that's going to help you uh, build this to the kind of, um, you, you know, uh, living living legend tribute to Vonnegut that we would like to have, and, and that we should have here in Indianapolis, you know? Kip? Uh, I, th- I think I first read Vonnegut in high school. Um, North Central, right? You North, North Central High School. And my actually, my brother was a bigger Kurt Vonnegut fan than I was, my younger brother. Uh, he talked about him constantly. And Julia's uh, ex-husband uh, at the time was very close friends with my brother. I had just come off the um, uh, presidential campaign of Barack Obama, who mm-hmm. won in 2008. And she approached me and said, you're a... Uh, she mistakenly thought I was uh, somebody in the in the community. <laughs> she said, "I need somebody like you to help me get this thing off the ground." And so um, uh, it was her idea. Uh, she had a she had built a relationship with uh, some of Vonnegut's uh, relatives, which is an incredibly important part of sure. uh, bringing the library to fruition. And because um, others had started and tried to think about it, but um, she uh, she is a bulldog. Uh, unlike anybody I've ever met, and it's the reason this place exists because of her determination. And uh, you know, we just helped uh, help raise money, help get people interested, help uh, interact with the community at large here to try to get this thing going. And so, um, you know, that's why I'm here. What's what drew you? What draws you to Vonnegut's writings? Uh, well, first, it's the humor, of course. I mean, he's one of the funniest guys that ever put pen to paper. Um, and uh, that his ability, I think, to look at the absurdity of life and make it both poignant and funny at the same time. You, you can cry on one page and laugh on the next page. Um, very, And he does it in a way that is very approachable. It is not, you know, it's it's not uh, one paragraph goes on for 12 pages. I mean, he <laughs> he knows how to turn a phrase that, that makes it easy to read. Kurt Vonnegut attended Short Ridge High School, which clearly has produced some amazing Hoosiers. Richard Luger being one of them, and there are several others. Why? What is it about his experience and growing up in Indianapolis that thinks that you think fueled his writing had kind of an interesting background. His family was wealthy. Then they weren't wealthy. His, his dad was the architect for the Athenaeum. Is that correct? His, his grandfather was grandfather ar- was yeah. forgive me. Mm-hmm. So his, his tell me father, about that upbringing. Uh, his father was an architect as well. Um, his mother was a socialite. They, um, very powerful family. His father was one of the board members of the Children's Museum here in Indianapolis. He, uh, designed the mascot, the original mascot, Sydney the Seahorse, which is quite a bit smaller than the life-size T-Rex, but really neat, (laughs) really, really neat looking thing nonetheless. Um, and, and I think... He he wrote about this in Architectural Digest. It's one of the really random and super cool things that we found uh, in, in an article from, I think, 1984, where he was talking about his father being this creative sort. And he was really, really inspired and interested in that. And he would take his friends home, and they were used to their fathers wearing suits and, and being businessmen. And they'd see his father just kind of playing with, you know, paints and what have you. And it was it was a di- or, or drawing... Uh, drawing buildings, it was just a different thing for them to look at, and his, and, his, and, and Kurt was very inspired by that. Uh, Kurt's sister uh, was a sculptor; she worked really well with her hands. Uh, she never really did anything with it uh, career-wise, uh, which Kurt used to give her grief about. Mm-hmm. Um, but she said, "Just because you're good at something doesn't mean you have to do it," which you know floored Kurt Vonnegut because he said, I, "That's not how I, <laughs> that's not how I perceived it." Um, so, I mean, you know, creativity was part of his family tradition now the great depression occurred and his father said you know don't you dare go into the arts and humanities <laughs> and uh and that was where i think a bit of a split occurred and, and they said you know go to cornell and study the sciences and um you know that was where he kind of went off to a scenario where he went to five universities and received zero degrees for the vast majority of his life 
his family, though, also uh, was well known in town because part of the family owned a hardware store uh, downtown Indianapolis. A, wasn't there a brewery that was part of the family as well that got lit by prohibition? Yeah, Kurt's uh, Kurt's mother's family, um, Albert Lieber, was her father. And uh, they were responsible for responsible for Indianapolis Brewing Company. Uh, Kurt's great grandfather Clemens Vonnegut was the one who founded Vonnegut Hardware Store. Uh, it's kind of neat. Some of the buildings that house the hardware store are still around. Uh, the Ace Hardware uh, across from the Melody Inn is an old Vonnegut Hardware Store. Uh, Audrey's Antique Shop over on uh, uh, on the on the east side of Indy on Tenth Street, and uh, actually the White Rabbit Cabaret uh, down Fountain Square is an old Vonnegut Hardware Store. But his family came here from Germany, is that correct? Yep, Munster, Germany. Uh, Clemens Vonnegut would have arrived here, we believe, in 1850 and started the hardware company. The original building was in downtown Indy, not far away from the Circle, uh, on Washington Street. And uh, that was the immigration story of the Vonnegut's. <laughs> How did his heritage, his German heritage, come into play as he started to grow up? He was born in 1922, so that's four years after the end of the Great War. We'll discuss his service in Germany during World War II here in a minute. But, you know, families, families back then, generations prior to Kurtz, had some real dilemmas because they loved their country, the United States, but they were proud of their German heritage. And when that, that conflicted in the Great War, a lot of them had choices to make. And what choice did the Vonnegut family make? It was um, it was complicated um, is is the best way that I can answer that. I mean, because everything's complicated. Um, I mean, his family was put in a real bind. We're we're going to do an exhibit about this in October, actually, as part of a of a German heritage exhibit. Because uh, you know, Kurt Kurt really uh, wrote a decent amount about the fact that in World War One, all of the anti German sentiment that was going on in Indianapolis had a profound effect on his family. They stopped speaking German as a primary language in the home. Uh, the Athenaeum was known as Das Deutschhaus. The name was changed to the Athenaeum. Uh, yes, so it was, it was changed to the Athenaeum during that time frame uh, as opposed to Dutch, Das Deutschhaus. And uh, Kurt wrote in Palm Sunday, my parents uh, voluntarily made me ignorant as proof of their patriotism. Now, I don't know if that's an overblown uh, remark. His, his family wasn't very nationalistic either. You'll notice a, a tremendous anti-nationalism in Vonnegut's work, um, deeply rooted in, I think, the influence of his father. Like uh, he, in that same Architectural Digest uh, article I was telling you about, there's a line in there where he says the concept of boundaries of nations being a matter of great importance would have completely flabbergasted my father. Um, so I, I think that may have been a, a little bit of a part of his upbringing as well. He does make that remark. He gave a speech at the Athenaeum in 1996 where he said, everything I love about Germany came from many Germanys and everything I loathe about Germany came from one. Now he's talking mm -hmm. about the Holocaust at that yeah. uh, particular juncture. Well, when, his, it is, when his grandparents... And previous generations were living in Germany. It was there were hundreds of principalities and free cities and duchies and kingdoms and stuff like that. So Germany, Germany then in the early 19th century was clearly much different than what he would have seen as a kid, just in terms of after the unification in the 1870s. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, Clemens Vonnegut left Germany in large part because. You know, in the eight, late 1840s, there was a revolution going on, and it was very pro-organized uh, religion and nature, and Vonnegut was a questioner. He, prefer, he preferred the term free thinker. By the time Kurt came around, he liked the term humanist. Um, so, you know, Kurt Vonnegut, in large part, came—Kurt uh, Vonnegut's great-grandfather, in a large part, came to the United States uh, for religious freedom, and in this case, uh, the religious freedom not to practice one. <laughs> Kip, is there any part of Kurt's story as a young man that, that is familiar to you in the sense that you didn't grow up really that far from Short Ridge? I know you went to North Central, but is there any part of it that resonates with you? The questioning sort of like the uh, seems that Vonnegut was someone who I don't know if he had a happy childhood. What would you say? It seems like there were parts of it were and then it just kind of turned bitter. Yeah, I, 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 I was I'll answer your first question, which is, you know, I think uh, uh Slaughterhouse-Five, um, the sort of the message of the book, if you want to call it a message, obviously it was a, a, a thinly veiled autobiography of his uh, time in 
Dresden in, in World War II. But uh, I think that leaves everybody with about the same kind of uh, feeling that I had from that book, which is, you know, uh, humans are horrible to each other. Um, and we uh, we go to war with each other for ridiculous reasons, um, largely, and uh, narcissistic uh, tendencies. If we don't, if we don't uh, tame the uh, savages of man, we end up uh, with atrocity. Um, and, and that book, uh, believe it or not, with that heavy of a subject, makes it funny, uh, which I think is, you know, an incredibly important gift to the world that people can do that so that it can be digested and still digested in a way that um, uh, makes you think, but also uh, touches the other parts of your humanity. And so for me, as a, you know, when I first read that book, um, uh, it had that, that effect on me. Um, I don't know that it's because he's from Indianapolis that I, uh, that I uh, felt even more kinship towards it. But, you know, his language, um, how he wrote, was Indianapolis. He says, you know, everything he is is Indianapolis. And so being a resident of this city all the years that I've been, uh, I'd like to think some of that is that. Um, but, you know, our culture change has changed quite a bit since the 60s here as well. Vonnegut graduated from Short Ridge in 1940, went to Cornell University. You mentioned that earlier. His dad was like, go do something, son. Uh, but on December 7th, 1941, fate and the Japanese intervened. Vonnegut ended up serving in the United States military and being present at the Battle of the Bulge. Started on December 16th, 1944. He, it's kind of a bit of bad luck, per se, that he ended up in the Ardennes forest <laughs> in December 44. Tell us I how I say it was bad luck for most people <laughs> that ended up in the Ardennes forest. Right. I think there were some, some grunts who kind of expected to be there and there are other people who didn't just because of, of the demands of the D day invasion and the manpower demands that were important to that act. A lot of people who thought they maybe were going to have a different career in the military ended up carrying that M one. How did he end up? in the European theater and at the Battle of the Bulge? And then what happened to him at the battle? It, it, it's so strange that this is such a weird and long and complicated story. Because uh, it was in his junior year at Cornell, bombing most of his classes because he spent all of his time with the Cornell Daily Sun, um, writing for the newspaper, and um, a lot of time with his fraternity Delta Upsilon as well. He called it a beer-soaked time. Uh, he spent the summer of his freshman year at Butler studying journalism. The professor said you write at a sophomore level, and Kurt said, that's good, I'm only a freshman. <laughs> um, Kurt and Jane, this uh, brilliant woman that he met in elementary school, and they you know, kind of reformed a relationship in, uh, in late high school and after college. They were kind of on, on again, off again in his junior year. And so after a bout with pneumonia, that's when he joined the Army, and uh, the Army, believe it or not, sent him to Carnegie and the University of Tennessee for heavy artillery training. So he was trained to drive this gun around. The howitzer made a big bang when it um, shot off. And um, he, was in, he was in school until spring of 44. And then the unit, the 106th Division, was shipped off to the Battle of the Bulge. So it's already towards you know, the end of the war. He's lightly armed, lightly dressed. He's being used as a scout. So most of the actual shooting training he got from his father, he said, thank God my father was a gun nut. Mm -hmm. uh, but he said he was captured nearly immediately. Uh, Kurt claimed to have never killed anybody in World War II. He said bayonets aren't very good against tanks. Uh, he also had an uncle, uh, his, his uncle-in-law, that he couldn't stand. And when he came back from the war, the uncle said, you know, you're a real man now. You've been to war. And Kurt said, I wanted to kill him. He would have been the only German I ever killed. <laughs> I, w I wanted to pause and thank you for all for laughing, because that joke doesn't always land. Uh, <laughs> so Kurt was marched about 60 miles to a, a train that took him to Dresden. Um and this is where the story gets really strange, because, you know, not only does he survive the Battle of the Bulge, which was complete chaos, and his unit was considered, you know, largely, um, it's the gambit in, in chess when you sacrifice a player. So, right. that, yeah, okay. So they, you know, they weren't expected to survive. Um, he marches 60 miles through the snow of northern Belgium in the Ardennes Forest, which, you know, they don't have proper footwear. That's a hellish, 
hellish experience. They get put on a boxcar where they're, you know, smashed into other human beings. And then they're there for quite a while and they survive a Christmas Eve bombing. Um, you know, long story short, he gets to Dresden and during the day they made prenatal syrup in a factory, sneak little spoonfuls of it under penalty of death for stealing. Uh, but the nutrients in it probably helped keep them alive, and that's where they were on the 13th of February, uh, 1945, when British and American airplanes bombed Dresden for about 24 hours and killed thousands of people. Um, so, you know, that's the really tough part of Slaughterhouse-Five, where you get into the reading of the aftermath of the bombing, and you've got German civilians throwing things at them, and you've got, um, you know, the inability to really clean up the city because there's so much destruction, and they're trying to put bodies on top of one another and light them on fire. When I'm giving tours every day, I'm sitting there just deciding, like, you know, how graphic into the story do I go? Uh, because it's a it's a really challenging piece of history, and the more you read Slaughterhouse Five, the more the metafiction starts to fall away, and it's just a flat out work of nonfiction to me at this juncture. Now, this is what happens when you read the book a hundred times sure. or more. Um, but it's uh, it's it's really galling and haunting, and it's it's shocking that he survived it. And he wrote a letter home to his family in Mar in May of forty five, uh, where he says, you know. This is what happened. Everybody was killed, but not me. They bombed Dresden. Everybody was killed, but not me. Mm -hmm. He's already got a form of So It Goes written into his letter home to his family, informing them that he's alive. Uh, it would take him another 22, 23 years to finish Slaughterhouse-Five. Do you get the sense that, that Kurt Vonnegut felt sorry for the people of Germany who were enduring these these bombings, you know, you could say through no fault of their own, and then that's an argument. Certainly Dresden. Yeah. I, mean, yeah. I mean, when you read, I'm sorry, I'm just going to give my opinion here for a second. Oh, go ahead. When you read Slaughterhouse-Five, you get the, uh, I, yeah, I've gotten a distinct impression that uh, uh, he wasn't blaming uh, the average citizen in the town of D Dresden for their fate. Mm -hmm. In fact, he's fairly critical of the Allied forces for... Um, for doing what they did in Dresden, which, I mean, history, I think, uh, can reflect upon it and say it wasn't necessary. Um, the war was pretty much over, but we went ahead and bombed the shit mm. out of Dresden and killed. I mean, there's all kinds of estimates as to how many people died, right. but almost everybody in that city died. It was it was pretty close to Hiroshima or Nagasaki on the level of destruction of that city. And the question is, was it necessary to eliminate all those fellow human beings that late in the war? Yeah, and, and Vonnegut said, you know, outwardly that Dresden shouldn't have been bombed. I, I think he felt a great deal of sorrow for the human race in general. Like, yeah. it, it's, a, it's a recurring theme in his general work. There's a, th there's a theme in a scene in Cat's Cradle where he talks about uh, God spoke to man, man stood up as made of mud and said... What is the purpose of all of this? And God says, everything must have a purpose. And man says, yep. And God says, well, I leave it to you to think of one for all of this. And then he walks away. That's a very powerful scene. And Vonnegut, you know, he, 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 I don't really think he was a cynic or uh, a, an overly depressed or angry person. I think he was someone who looked at the world and saw a lot of confusion and, and pain and suffering. And, and, you know, I think he really on some level believed in like, okay, we got to hope for chocolate chip cookies or, you know, a sunny day. And that's why he kept repeating that line from his uncle Alex from Indianapolis, who would ever say, you know, notice when you're happy, notice when you're happy, say, if this is a nice, what is, and just, that was a recurring theme in his work. Cause he, he'd seen some real horrors and, uh, and he needed slaughterhouse five. He needed the Tralfamadorians and the planet Tralfamador, where the aliens are shaped like toilet plungers and the air is made of cyanide. Like, he needed that to tell this garish, horrible story. And then even, like, to later days in his life, if you asked him in person how he felt about Dresden, he would color it up. He would say, oh, it was a great adventure. I wouldn't miss it for the world. Mm. But then, you know, 20 years later, you go and read Bluebeard. And, you you know, he, he talks much more linearly and, 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 uh, and directly about what it was like, especially in the aftermath of the German guards abandoning them and just watching, like, the whole country is just, like, destroyed. And there's people walking around trying to figure out what the hell they're going to do next, especially people who were going to be executed by the Soviets not very soon afterwards. Like, Especially the women yeah. who knew what was coming. Yeah. You're listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guests are Chris LaFave, curator of the Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library, located right here in Indianapolis on Indiana Avenue. I get that right? Indiana Avenue, right? Mm -hmm. 
Our other guest is Kip Two, multiple guest now on the Leaders and Legends podcast. We can't simply get enough, Chris, yeah. just in case you wanted to know. Yeah. Cannot get enough. The Leader and Legend Kip Two. Yeah. <laughs> nice. I think that I didn't know in doing the research for this was that Kurt must have gotten, or Mr. Vonnegut must have gotten some of his sense of humor or something in the water at Short Ridge High School because he went to school with, uh, I think it was Madeline Pugh, who was one of the writers for the I Love Lucy show and others. One of the most brilliant comedy writers of all time. Did Vonnegut, you think? This is that part of town, you know, because David Letterman grew up in that part of town too, so. Ted Bohm. (laughs) One of the great humorists of uh, (laughs) modern day. No offense, Ted. (laughs) Kip, you want to say that again real loud? (laughs) I love Ted Bohm. Don't don't get me wrong. And he does have a very good dry sense of humor, but I don't put him on the same pedestal as, (laughs) as David Letterman, so. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but Bohm graduated from college and law school, and poor <laughs> Kurt couldn't seem to figure it out. I don't think Letterman graduated, did he? No, he didn't. <laughs> we're, we're doing this wrong, guys. <laughs> no, I think, I think, he, I think Wait, he, I'm sure, Ball, Ball, I would hope Ball State's given him an honorary degree by now. <laughs> oh, my God. Do you get the sense that, that his humor was his Prozac? Kurt Vonnegut's, I mean, like certain people look for ways to cope with life, and sometimes it's alcohol, sometimes it's something else, and sometimes it's... A little more intrinsic sense of humor, do you believe? Well, well, again, there's a, a real dichotomy between what people admit to and what they, you know. So Vonnegut said, "I my sense of humor was developed in two ways: uh, one, from being the youngest by far, and if the youngest kid around the table, when the one older kid is five years older than you and the other kid is nine years older than you, you better be funny if you wanted any, any attention around the dinner table with grownups." Um, and then the secondary thing had to do with working for the Short Ridge Daily Echo, where he did work with Madeline Pugh. And um, you found out pretty quickly from your peers if your joke didn't go over well. So he learned, and it, it's interesting because his style is very uh, opposite of mine. Uh, Vonnegut called himself a basher who would sweat over every sentence until it was perfect. I can't fathom doing that. I think in undergrad, I turned in assignments without ever reading them. Um, so reading the assignments or reading what you were reading what I wrote (laughs) or reading the assignments for that matter. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was tough to get all that done. Um, so I mean, I, I think that was what made Vonnegut really interesting was he was such an unbelievable craftsman and someone who cared so much about the reader. Whereas like, you know, I've, I've grown up liking avant-garde jazz and jam bands, and to a certain degree, like improvisation, could be downright disrespectful towards the audience. So it's like, it's uh, it's it's comical that he was such a pro audience uh, what? artist. I want to I want to jump Go in ahead. here too I, because I I think you're onto something. I do believe that the the humor was uh, sort of his Prozac, but it, it but it's but it it also harkens to uh, something we have to mention here, and and it's one of the missions of our library and museum. So I want to I want to plug that a little bit, and that is, you know, he had undiagnosed uh, post traumatic stress syndrome. I don't see how it's possible for him not to have had it. He saw incredible horrors. His mother committed suicide. His sister died in a car crash. I mean, he had, you know, just these incredibly traumatic series of events in his life, almost all of them when he was, you know, at a very impressionable age. And so, uh, he dealt with it. Uh, you know, it was before there was Prozac, before there were antidepressants, before there was, you know, a widespread, uh, uh, acceptance of uh, going to see a psychiatrist or getting counseling or therapy and those types of things. And so he dealt with it by writing um, and and using humor in his writing. But uh, so I think it, you, you're you're dead on with that uh, thought. I'll go a step further, and I think writing was his Prozac uh, when he got to 1990 when he was working on his novel Timequake. Um, he was struggling pretty heavily with the novel and he said on multiple occasions this is my last novel this is my last book uh but when he died in 2007 he was working on a novel so i think uh you know it was very hard to turn that off so i mean he um he he was working out some challenges that he had uh in the novel slapstick he talks very openly about it um coming back to indianapolis to for the funeral of his uncle alex um he's talking about how weird it is to come back to your hometown and see your family that used to number you know counting cousins and uncles and stuff like that used to be massive 
and now is not because people have either spread out throughout the world or they've died and gone on. Um, he wrote this amazing book about loneliness and it had to do with the death of his sister who passed away from cancer in 58 and he adopted her children. Um, and he used the, the scheme of Alcoholics Anonymous to kind of sum up the whole idea. He was like, Alcoholics Anonymous is great because it gives everybody a gazillion random family members who have shared trauma and who can help each other get through life. Um, and and so he based this hilarious scheme where like everybody in the world ends up inheriting a hundred thousand random family members uh, based on strange middle names like Daffodil and Raspberry and. So did I? Did I uh, screw up? Say she died in a car wreck. That's the Slaughterhouse Five version of how she died. No, no, no. That's his sister. That's uh, yeah. Kurt's sister died in a car accident. But his yeah. mom. His mom killed herself. Killed herself. Like right around Mother's cancer. Day, isn't no, it? Okay, 44? so the, his. Kurt's, Kurt's sister died of cancer in 1958. Kurt's, okay. Kurt's mother uh, died of an alcohol and sleeping pill related overdose. Uh, there's some family debate as to whether it was intentional or not. Uh, Vonnegut believed that she took her own life. Um, so, I mean, you know. And the other sister died in a car wreck. You said one died of cancer. Yeah, yeah. One no, died no, one, no, one, no one died in a car wreck. Um, Kurt's, Kurt's brother-in-law died in a train crash. A uh, train went off a drawbridge. Uh, the, yeah. Yeah. A lot of, uh, okay. So a lot of, lot of <laughs> so we're not taking the Vonnegut's to Vegas mm-hmm. with us. <laughs> Pro- probably not. Um, no, no. So, I mean, he, I, I think he did live through um, more than the average human being is in terms of uh, major trauma. And humor was a big part of coping with it. Writing was a big part of coping with it. And the visual arts that he got, I mean, he was into it throughout his life. He was a doodler all the time. Um, But when he got into screen printing with Joe Petro in the early 90s, I mean, he credited that with having saved his life. So he basically didn't follow his dad's advice in his chosen profession. He tried. Yeah, Lord knows he tried. Um, he studied anthropology at, uh, at the University of Chicago, and he called it poetry masquerading as science, and that's how I got away with studying it. Um, so, I mean, he, um, yeah, he sure tried. And, and I think on some level, he, uh, he thought it was interesting that he never got to be right. an architect. Well, and, you know, uh, uh, he worked for a Volvo <laughs> dealership, right? Was it Saab? Saab, Saab I'm sorry, Saab. Yeah, I, I shoot him. He worked for a Saab dealership. He worked at um, uh, Kodak. Is that right? Uh, he worked in corporate America in a couple of different jobs and absolutely hated it. I can't. Well, he was in Syracuse or near Syracuse, and he was upstate New York somewhere. Schenectady. Yeah. Oh yeah, Schenectady. He worked for General Electric. General Electric. Um, but I think there was. A I am couple- not the historian. <laughs> Clearly, <laughs> that's okay. No, and, and and the more I talk, the real the more I realize what a nerd I am. Like how how like after eleven years of this, my head is so filled with. Um, information about it. <laughs> but, yeah. So how did he decide this is what I want to do for a living and then have the perseverance to stay with it? I mean, it's, it's like you read about bands, right? You know, where they made 50 bucks a night for five years, then all of a sudden they had a hit. Is that kind of what happened to him metaphorically? Yeah, I mean, you know, Jane helped him with it. Uh, I think she truly believed in his talent as a writer, um, I think the fact that you could probably see that he sweated over every sentence um, and that he took his craft very seriously probably helped. I think she knew that having come home from the bombing of Dresden, that Kurt had a story to tell that would be absolutely in the human interest. Um, my guess is he already had a unique sense of humor that would seem to step outside of the typical. And so that probably helped as well. So she was a major cheerleader for him. Um, and then one of my favorite stories of all time, especially because we have um, we have students come in here. Uh, so, you know, in 1950, he's working for GE and he's got two kids and he doesn't care for the corporate America job very much. Um, so he wrote a short story entitled Report on the Barnhouse Effect, and he got a rejection letter back from Collier's Magazine. At the bottom of this rejection letter, it says in pencil, this is a little sententious for us. Now, like most people, none of us knew what the hell that meant, but we looked it up in Google and it means smart alecky. Uh, so it's sententious to use the word sententious. And he says, you're not, the, you're not the Kurt Vonnegut who worked on the Cornell Sun, are you? And it's this guy, Knox Berger, who knew him at Cornell. And so I always tell these kids, don't burn your bridges, because it's like, you know, I, I grew up with helicopter parents, so and I love my mom and dad to death, but it was like, you know, 
go to bed by 10 p.m., don't smoke cigarettes, and nothing bad will ever happen to you. And that's not really how vegetable. Yes, but sometimes it's better to like, okay, you know, you never know when someone will be able to do you a turn. Uh, So uh, Knoxberger made Vonnegut write this story like five times. But he eventually got paid $750 for it, which to me is still a lot of money. Uh, but in 1950, it was a heck of a lot of money to everybody. And four stories later, gets paid 1250 Quits his job at GE right away. Uh, moved his family to Barnstable, Massachusetts in Cape Cod. And that's where he lived from 1951 to 1970. Uh, he kept, you know, that, that opened up enough doors that I think his career at the time was writer, even though he did buy a Saab dealership in 1956, 57 and ran it into the ground in about a year. Um, you know, and he, Who the and hell he drove a Saab in the fifties. It, it was interesting. Apparently you know? nobody. Yeah. Uh, well, he couldn't sell any the of Swedes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He, I'll, I'll tell you the joke when we're off, off the air, but it's, it's pretty profane. Um, so, I mean, he, uh, yeah, he just had a lot of tenacity. And went through a lot of failure. That's that's the other thing I tell the students about is like he just like player piano, not a hit. Sirens of Titan, considered a masterpiece today, not a hit when it came out. Player piano's fifty two. Yeah, player piano's fifty two. Sirens is fifty nine. But did Vonnegut have an innate sense or or a reasonable sense of his own talent? Did he believe in himself? And that's. Kip, you've read a lot about him. Is that something that you go, well, he didn't make it. You know, not everyone hits a home run at their first at bat. So let's keep swinging because I've got the talent to make this work. He, he had one thing that uh, a lot of people lack, and he had a wife who was 100%, a million percent, saw his talent and and made sure that he continued on. Uh, so many people feel like they have to provide for their family and, and do the, you know, the usual world work of uh, raising their family and making sure there's food on the table. And she's like, this is your talent and I'm going to help you nurture your talent. And yeah, he had incredible tenacity himself, but I don't think it would have happened without Jane. No, no, no way in hell does it happen without Jane. I don't think, I mean, he had, um, I I think it's normal to have self-doubts, and especially when you have rejection letter after rejection letter after rejection letter, which is how anybody starts anything. Um, God, I wish I would have told somebody would have told me that growing up is that failure will be a part of your life and you just kind of swim <laughs> through it to a certain degree. Like, but, but Slaughterhouse Five, to go back to that, hey, why did he call it that? What was that purpose of that name or genesis of the title of the book? It was it was the name of the meat locker that they were held in as prisoners of war that he descended down into to avoid. I, I mean, it was the name of the slaughterhouse that they were sleeping in every night. And there was a bomb shelter just outside that they were able to crawl into. So that's published, I think in 69. Yep. Right in the middle of the Vietnam war. How did the Vietnam war propel the sales of that book? And then Vonnegut's clear literary stardom. It, it, in your opinion, would Slaughterhouse-Five has been so successful or as successful if it was written in a time of peace? I mean, I, I you know, hypothetical questions are always hard to answer, but uh, yeah, I mean, the, the Vietnam War played an enormous role in, in, in that. I would say the not just the fact that it was not a time of peace, but it was the kind of war the Vietnam War was and that there was so much protest against it and there was so much consternation in this country. And his book, Slaughterhouse-Five, is sort of uh, the personification of the futility of uh, war in some play, in some ways. And so I think that that fed into it. Without all that combined, it probably wouldn't have been, uh, uh, wouldn't have taken off. But the counterculture at the time that people were protesting ate it up. Yeah. But there was a sense that the parallel could have been the wanton destruction represented by Dresden coming so close towards the end of the war with the wanton destruction of the villages and the farms or the rice paddies or whatever of, of Vietnam. But the American people have never felt in anything that I've ever read that World War II was anything other than a just war foisted upon the American people, whereas Vietnam has looked at you know, we intervened in an internal civil war with no clear sense of how to win. Did that matter to the people that World War II was a just war and Vietnam was seen as a complete failure? And well, the, how- book, does, the book doesn't really, I think, address 
the differences in the two wars because it's a novel about what happened. But the American people could watch the bombing and the destruction on their TV every night that was going on in Vietnam and then pick up Slaughterhouse Five and go, okay, now I get it. Right. Yeah. And that's where that's where I think Vonnegut's voice comes in. You know, not only does he write a foreword and an afterword to Slaughterhouse Five, where he kind of describes what he's doing uh, in the beginning of the book, he calls the book a failure twice in the first twenty pages of the mass of the book, which I think is just such a bold move. Um, you know, because not a lot of authors do that. Because uh, he says there's nothing intelligent to say about a massacre. Mm. These are the kind of sentences that you see in Slaughterhouse Five that stop your heart. And then at the end, he's writing about Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King, and then his father. Who he says, you know, he left me his guns. They rust. <laughs> he was a sweet old man. He died of natural causes. Uh, so it goes. And at the end, they talk about the amount of population there is in the world. And, and Bernardo Harris says, I suppose they will all want dignity. <laughs> <laughs> and Vonnegut goes, I suppose. Which so, means none of them went into politics, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's... I, I think... Um, yeah, there's, you know, the genius of that book was really loud at a time. Is that your favorite Vonnegut book? Not even close. No, that's what is uh, yours? Um, Cat's Cradle, probably. He is wearing he is wearing a Cat's Cradle oh, shirt, yeah. Chris, which, <laughs> which you can see in the podcast photograph that's posted. What's your favorite Vonnegut book? Mine is Slaughterhouse-Five, and I think Bluebeard would be second for me. Uh, Man Without a Country is probably third. Uh, all three of them just speak to me. Uh, Bluebeard, because I'm getting old, and that story that's a story about an old man uh, and re- reflecting on his life and what was important. Still I, a warrior I, on the bicycle, I, my friend. I highly recommend Bluebeard for people my age. Uh, definitely gives you a nice perspective. Um, so, and, and, I, and I say cats, I say... Uh, uh, Slaughterhouse Five, uh, mostly because it was the first book of his I read, and it it sort of changed everything for me. And so I look at it and just say, you know, it's such a wonderful piece of fiction, uh, piece of writing, um, and it and it opened the door to the rest of Vonnegut. So it ha- it's just my favorite because because of that. And Cat's Carrier was the first book you read, right? Is that what you said? Um, it, it wasn't. It wasn't the first, but it was the most profound, I think. Uh, and I've talked about. You know, we've had a lot of visitors come into the museum. Um, dealing with loss and the book cat's cradle keeps coming up as like one is like a, a a sort of a coping mechanism for when something completely outside of your control happens now slaughterhouse five is the same in that regard like people people reference that as well uh but when people are dealing with things that are bigger than they are and they can't stop whatever less than amazing thing is happening to them at this moment books like slaughterhouse five and cat's cradle get mentioned pretty heavily in that scenario do you have Harry Chapin on Endless Loop here at the uh, museum and they library? Did, they did put it on the uh, they did put it on the on the soundtrack for the for the radio station that plays throughout the Vonnegut Library. Um, you know they had a sense of humor. Good for that. Uh, I'm not sure that song is terribly connected to Vonnegut, but it was. Uh, it was that tune that guys hear on the radio and go, oh, no. Oh, God. <laughs> I don't really want to cry in front of these people right now. It's an impactful song for sure. How did Slaughter, and we'll move on to the later part of his life, including, of course, the brilliant cameo in Back to School with Rodney Dangerfield. <laughs> How did Slaughterhouse-Five's success impact his life? a PhD level question. I mean, did it both give him financial security, but then raise the bar of expectation? Like now you must write slaughterhouse fives for the rest of your life. Uh, I, I think he kind of went in the other direction in that sense. He, he explored, he explored postmodernism pretty heavily through breakfast of champions and slapstick. He's, a you know, he's definitely in a major character in the novel breakfast of champions. Uh, the critics were unkind to those books, which, um, you know, today people don't badmouth breakfast of champions. They might still badmouth slapstick cause they're wrong. Um, and, and Jailbird, Jailbird. Or think it's the movie with Paul Newman? <laughs> no, no, not, not that one. But, uh, yeah, uh, Jailbird, uh, was a huge critical success. Um, so, I mean, he, he had his ups and downs like any, like any novelist, but he had some real, real big ones like Galapagos got him rave reviews. Um, Man Without a Country turned him on to, uh, to a younger generation, uh, when he was on the John Stewart show. 
Um, so, I mean, he, he lived a very full career and, and, and I was, I was new to that. When I came on here, I had no idea how prolific that he had been. I didn't know that he wrote 14 novels and, uh, multiple collections of short stories, uh, essays galore. Well, I, I would add though, uh, back to sort of the question you said and how it launched his career. I don't think there's any doubt that, that, you know, it, it did bring that level of stress to him that, but he had it already. I mean, as, as Chris said earlier, he was, he was a perfectionist in his writing, believe it or not, and very, very much a craftsman in his writing. So he wanted to make sure the next book was as good as the last book, uh, which is, you know, all the, the sort of one of the cues of great, uh, you know, transforming artists, uh, throughout time is that they're, adherence to that type of stuff but I, but 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 also uh, it changed him personally changed his life personally it uh hurt his relationship with his wife it hurt for at least a while it hurt his relationships with his children uh he became a celebrity um in and and, and, he, and he and he and he adopted some of the bad characteristics of celebrity i mean i i'm i i worship him i'm an original member of you know this museum and those things but he was not a perfect man by any stretch of the uh, imagination and he had if you watch the robert weedy um documentary which i highly highly recommend uh it does a pretty fair job of of uh, going through a bunch of this stuff and you know one of the things that uh celebrity and fame can do to you is it can it can uh cause you to change your change yourself a little bit and be seen as bigger than what you actually are i mean you went through a little bit of that but i think he also came to terms with it later in life and didn't didn't he you said he was m- more of a would it be fair to classify vonnegut as an agnostic yeah yeah and I his wife embraced christianity at a certain point well his wife embraced the concept of religion. Uh, she was a Quaker growing up uh, in the 1960s. She got into the teachings of the Maharishi. Um, you know, she campaigned for McGovern. She was just a very active uh, person. And I think, uh, I, I think Vonnegut struggled with that. Um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, their, their problems were, were vast. Um, I, it's, it's one of the more tragic parts of his story that I think, he was born in 22 so he was a he was a kindergartner basically when the great depression hit then he serves in world war 2 he comes out he has some i mean i don't know if you could say his his failure to obtain a college degree was in and of itself a failure but jobs he doesn't like he's trying to get published as he comes of age Slaughterhouse Five comes out in Vietnam. He understands the horror of combat, of yeah. what happens there. Was there a particular two quick questions? One is how much did the outside world and what was happening affect his writing or influence his writing? Not his not his mentality, but the world. How much did that influence it? And and second, do you ever believe that or can you pinpoint when he was happy? Like his uncle said, um, God, pinpointing his happiness would be way more than I would want to speak to. I mean, I, I think when he was hanging out with Morley Safer and and what was the other author name from Baltimore, Sydney Offit, Sydney Offit. I think that was a happy time. Or, for him. or was it like one of our previous podcast guests, Donnie Walsh of the Pacers, described Coach Larry Brown as only happy when he's unhappy. <laughs> Was uh, Vonnegut only happy when he was unhappy? No, I don't. I don't, I don't think that's true at all. I think he uh, he loved to socialize. He was he was pretty extroverted. Um, so and he loved music. He got a, he got a lot of enjoyment out of the arts and humanities. He got a lot of enjoyment out of other people. Um, you know, his son Mark describes him as a pessimistic optimist, um, which sounds like a contradiction in terms, but I, I I don't think it really was. What was the first question again? How did the world, you know, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, you know, in the prime of his writing years, the world was undergoing some significant changes and and experiencing significant conflicts. Nothing like World War II, of course, but at the same time, you know, was he was he a progressive who derided the Reagan years or was he someone who was taken in? That's that's a. I'm sorry, that's a biased way to ask the question. Was he someone who was sympathetic to like the nuclear freeze movement, that sort of stuff? Was he susceptible to that and did it affect his writing? I mean, 
you know, I, I think most artists are. I mean, like, if you look at Player Piano, he based it off of his time at GE. Uh, he was watching the future being created before his eyes, and he thought, oh, my God, how are human beings ever going to be able to compete with technology and globalization and all this rapid uh, economic and technological change? Um, you know, back then, the critics and, uh, and the fans didn't get the book necessarily, and they pigeonholed him as a science fiction author. Uh, tried to publish it against Utopia 14, but today yeah, I think it's the book that Andrew Yang probably sleeps with under his pillow. Um, <laughs> so, you know, and you've got The Sirens of Titan. I guess that one leaned more into science fiction, but, uh, you know, people read Cat's Cradle and they thought, oh, the Cuban Missile Crisis. And uh, people read God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater. They thought, oh, the 1964 presidential election uh, between Goldwater mm-hmm. and uh, LBJ, who, you know, Kurt kind of used Roosevelt as a stand in for some of the great society ideas. Um, Jail Birdie was talking about Watergate in the aftermath of that. Uh, Dead Eye Dick has to do with his feelings on guns, which he was pretty anti-gun. Uh, Galapagos had to do with environmental catastrophes. So, I mean, he was, he was very prescient with what he was writing and he was trying to use the outside world as an, as a, as an inspiration. Yep. I agree with everything he just said. <laughs> just like when you and I were on. TV together, right? <laughs> oh, no, yeah, that happened quite frequently. <laughs> <laughs> we have a few minutes left with Chris LaFave, curator, the Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library here in downtown Indianapolis, and also with board member and someone I admire greatly, a great friend, Kip, too. We have just one other question I want to ask you about Indianapolis. Did he embrace his hometown? Did he love coming back here? Was he, was he thrilled to be honored by by his peers or people he knew as a kid, as someone who, you know, he didn't escape poverty and then, you know, go on to do great things, but he became worldwide famous and he was just a short Ridge high school IPS kid. Uh, yes. In time in the, in the early 1990s, David Hoppy uh, of Nouveau and some other people uh, were putting together a festival. I'm in a blank on the name of it, but it had the word word in it. Um, <laughs> So they, they summoned him back, and uh, Vonnegut, for whatever reason, had a blast on that trip, and he ran into some Short Ridge High School uh, friends, and they and he, and he stuck around in town for a while. And after that, he started to look much more forward to coming back to Indy. And I think Indy had gone on to embrace him a little bit more as, as a writer. Um, while his books are certainly still controversial, depending on who's reading them and, 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 and what their take on the world is, um, I don't think he was public enemy number one anymore, starting in the early 1990s. So uh, uh, he, he grew to have great affection for Indianapolis. And I, and I think, you know, your, your, your childhood is you, every human being on the face of the earth looks at the past in rose colored glasses to a certain degree. So, you know, Indianapolis was partly a mytholo- mythologized childhood, uh, especially his time at Lake Maxikaki. He, uh, he wrote about that as well. Did he stay in touch with his army buddies? Uh he stayed in touch with Bernie O'Hare and maybe two or three others. And, um, you know, after that, I think it was just the normal separation of time. Uh, plus the fact that, you know, you got a fair amount of veterans that don't want to rehash. And there's no Facebook when Kurt Vonnegut died. Which yeah. Is a huge deal. He, 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 there, there are some famous stories about when he came back. And you can probably tell the story better than I because I get missed the details. I don't tell a story every day. But he came back for a book signing at, at one point. I think it was for Slaughterhouse-Five, and it wasn't well attended, right? Yeah. And that was that was in the early 70s at the uh, LS Harris downtown at the building that his father and, uh, that his father designed. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he was upset about it. And, you know, obviously, as someone who's worked at a museum for a long time, I've been to a lot of book signings. Uh, sometimes something as simple as weather can, you know, destroy right. a book signing. But I, I think he took it as a, as a bit of an Indiana doesn't like my books with drawings of assholes and four letter words in it, which mm-hmm. it's entirely possible that Indiana didn't like it. So, um, and that that aspect was was true in his family as well. There were members of his family who read his books and thought this is dis- this is terrible. So you would know better than anyone, I think. What is the behind the scenes story of Kurt Vonnegut's cameo in Rodney Dangerfield's movie Back to School, where Rodney Dangerfield says, "Kurt." What's he the, the, you don't the, the know the first thing about <laughs> his teacher says that the the oh she was in MASH I'm blanking on her name and she just died can't think of it 
wait a second. Our crack research department is on it right now. Mr. Chris Spangle. Yeah, I'm tell you the truth. I'm how did he get on? How did, I mean, talk about one of the most ridiculous cameos of all time. I think I think Bob Whitey was pretty involved in it. I mean, he talks about it in the documentary, how he was just kind of contacted because uh, they were working on this film and they thought, oh, OK, I wonder if he would do the cameo. And sure enough, he did. So well, they, wasn't he doing a paper on Vonnegut? Wasn't wasn't yeah yeah, yeah yeah his, right. his teacher said do a paper on Vonnegut. So he hires to write Vonnegut to write the paper on Vonnegut, and he gets a C. Or and he gets a C, like and she says you don't know the first thing about Vonnegut. Then Dangerfield calls him and yells at him or something. <laughs> but I wonder if if they wrote wrote Vonnegut in and then asked him, or asked him and then said, okay, now we can write him in because he said. I think they asked him. I, I would assume they asked him first. I actually don't know. It's, it does bring up another thing. And I know we're we're kind of running out of time, but one of the things that I've found in my decade here working here is the number of stand-up comedians who and and musicians who uh, owe their inspiration to their careers to Kurt Vonnegut and come through this place uh, and look at it as sort of uh, uh, like coming to Nirvana for them. There's there's so many of them. Our board chair now mm-hmm. is uh, is a famous stand-up comedian uh, uh, who also is a film star and other things, Louis Black. But we've had uh, so many people who uh, have come through our doors or helped us uh, over the years to to uh, become what we are now, uh, who got their start because they found in Kurt Vonnegut uh, something that they could uh, help laugh at and how his humor uh, made them better stand-up comedians or inspired them. And we should uh, we've heard that, that he story. And, he and Dangerfield would have been contemporaries probably. I mean, they would yes. have been close to the same age for sure. Yep. The person I'm trying to think of is Sally Kellerman. Oh, Sally Kellerman. Oh. Before we get to the five questions, will we ask all guests, and you don't have to answer these as Kurt Vonnegut. <laughs> you can just give us your answers. Uh, tell us, spend a few minutes, please, and talk about your library and museum located here in downtown Indianapolis. Yeah. Um, you know, being able to do this has been the honor and privilege of a lifetime. Uh, we get visitors in from all over the world who, just like Kip said, I don't want to make it sound too strange, but like there's a lot of people who walk in here and say, you know, Kurt, help me do this. Help me do that. It's a much more common thing than you would think for someone to come in and say, this guy helped me get through the death of my father or alcoholism through, you know, when I was in AA. I I had a friend who um, plays on my adult kickball team. And he's like, yeah, when I was doing some time I was reading Slaughterhouse Five and I thought, wow, this is so powerful that the that his writing has this impact on people. Um, so on top of having a museum where we focus on free speech, uh, we have a freedom of expression exhibit because Vonnegut's books started getting banned in the late 1960s and that has not stopped. It's still going on. Um, you know, everywhere you go, there's someone who will find a four letter word in a book and say, this should be out of libraries and out of schools. Uh, with the invention of the internet, that sounds even more strange than it must have uh, sounded back in the sixties and seventies. Uh, but you know, so we give away free book copies of Slaughterhouse Five to, uh, to students who want to read it. That's one of our programs. Uh, every year during Band Book Week, which is the last week of September, we have lots of programming going on. Uh, this year we've got the um, the um, oh the Brooklyn book cl- the, the the Brooklyn Book Club. I'm going to blank on their name, uh, but they're a band. So we've got an entire band that's going to be living in our museum this year. They're going to be working on a musical project uh, with some musicians from Indianapolis uh, kind of helping out with that. Uh, so we're an anti-censorship organization. Uh, you're, we're sitting in an office right now as part of our third floor, uh, which is our Slaughterhouse 5 exhibit. We feature a veteran's artwork at all times in this uh in this exhibit right now, we've got the Iraq war veteran, Sean Augustin's uh, paintings on display. He's from Columbus, Ohio. We've got a guy named Ed Carrion. Uh, his work's going to be coming in uh, pretty soon here. So he'll be on display throughout the, throughout the year. A photographer named Jack Wicks, you know, Jack, uh, he's going to be bringing in an exhibit at some point. Um, he's on our board as well. Yeah. So we, uh, we do a lot of programming with that. We go into schools, um, yeah, it's just been very, very rewarding. What's your website address and your physical address and people want to visit? Uh, we are at vonnegutlibrary.org and our socials are at, at Vonnegut Library. Um, and then we're located at 543 Indiana Avenue, which is right across the street from the Walker Theater. 
and you get support from around the country, around the world, that it's not it's not just an Indiana thing. Without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah, all over the world. We've reached the point in the Leaders and Legends podcast where we ask the same five questions of all of our guests. You ready, Chris? Oh, yeah. What was your first job? Uh, corn detasseling. Um, I was in seventh grade, I think. My uh, I was the laziest kid in the family by far. <laughs> and uh, when my father dragged me out of bed at five in the morning and he drove me so far, like Indianapolis to Tipton is a bit of a drive. So I was about 30 minutes into thinking my father was taking me out to execute me. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, which I mean, I say this with all great love. The man has passed on and, and he, you know, didn't just didn't have a lot of stomach for a kid who just wanted to listen to Grateful Dead and take naps all day long. Um, so, yeah, anyway, he drove me out to this farm where it was 300 degrees and the bugs were cl- crawling up my nose. And uh, I'll never forget that experience as long as I live. And hopefully my kids will never know the... Uh, I'm going to make sure they wait tables. Joy. Yeah. Joy. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to I'm gonna make sure they work in the service industry so they never give someone a bad tip as long as they live. But uh, but yeah, I probably won't make them corn detassel. <laughs> <laughs> what, number two, what was your first concert? Oh, man. Um, first concert I can remember, uh, Elton John and Billy Joel at the RCA Dome in 96 or something like that. John Denver was around that time for him, too. If you could recommend any... I hesitate to even ask this question. Please make it a non-Kurt Vonnegut selection. If you could recommend any book for someone to read, not written by Kurt Vonnegut, which book would you choose? Jesus Christ. Is that that the Bible? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Do I have to limit this to one? We'd prefer you do the same thing that other people do, but okay. you're a rebel. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I'll, I'll make this fair. Um, when I was um, reading Cat's Cradle during that time of great uh, economic lack of achievement, I was also reading uh, Cannery Row by John Steinbeck. So let's let's go with that one. That was pretty life-altering. If you could witness any event in history, be there as it happens, which event would you choose? Oh, wow. Um, you know, I'm from, I'm from the general Toronto area, and I, I don't know why this came into my head. No idea. Uh, well, Charles Mingus had his centennial this year, um, so maybe that's why. Uh, Massey Hall in 1953, possibly. Uh, had a concert where Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, Bud Powell, Charles Mingus, and Max Roach uh, were playing as a quintet. And the show was kind of a disaster. Charlie Parker pawned his saxophone for heroin like a couple hours beforehand, and he had to go get a different... He was playing a plastic alto saxophone, and um, Mingus was pissed off that his bass was too low in the mix, or so, so they had to overdub his bass. And for some reason, I just think that would be a really interesting, like it's the most, like it's this legendary blown out of proportion concert that nearly all of the stars were angry about in the aftermath. And I just, I just think that would be an interesting thing to witness. The last question is, if you could have dinner with anyone living today, living today, whom would you choose? You know, I come from a long line of people that take manners too, table manners too seriously. So uh, you remember when you were a kid and like someone really elderly would say, take your elbows off the table or something really, really weird like that. You wonder who was like, oh, elbows, those are offensive. Um, so I'd like to find the person that invented that rule. Well, I can tell you, it's my mother and father who were, <laughs> who were both in the Marine Corps. My, my grandfather pretended not to be colorblind so that he could join the Canadian Air Force. And they were so pissed when he couldn't tell red from green. And like, and, and, he, and he was like that. Like he would, it would be one thing if they had like a preference for not doing that, but they would like lose their tempers over this. And I'd like to sit there and have dinner and just like eat chicken wings or something really messy and like wipe my hands on my white T-shirt and just like, you know, watch that person have a car. Okay. I bet you've not had an answer anything like that. No, those are all <laughs> those are all pretty, you know, pretty unique. But Kip, let me if I can remember these, I'm gonna add you've already answered the five questions because you were wrong with Murray Clark. 
uh, several months ago, which we enjoyed very much. But let me see if I can remember the four questions I asked Governor Eric Holcomb when I interviewed him for the Capitol Chronicle. So I know the first one. What was your first car? First car I drove or first car I owned? First car you owned. Uh, It was an Opal. It had like six colors on it because it had been... uh, (laughs) Half painted. I bought it for $400 in Bloomington when I was a senior in college. When it rained, it leaked, and the radio didn't work. And no air conditioning. I'm envious that you had $400 as a senior in college. (laughs) (laughs) Student loans, baby. (laughs) Oh, boy. What was your... If you could choose... Let me do it this way. If you could choose any game for your team to win that they lost... Any of your favorite teams, who would you, which, which game would you choose? Well, the first one that comes to mind is uh, uh, IU versus Maryland uh, National Championship basketball game. Probably that would be the one. That's the one that comes to mind. Uh, I, I wish Andrew Luck would have won a Super Bowl, but I don't think we got far enough or long for that. But those are my two answers. <laughs> if you could witness any sporting event in history... Which one would you choose? Be there in person. Mm. Boy, that's a tough one. Uh, probably Gale Sayers in his prime. Scoring six touchdowns against the 49ers? Yeah, the I mean, but there's so many. I would would have loved to see Pele in person. I would have loved to watch Kareem Abdul-Jabbar play in his prime, Wilt Chamberlain, Bill Russell. Sure. I'm a bigger basketball fan than anything, so it's probably it would come down to basketball. Watch Wilt score 100 points in Hershey, Pennsylvania. Last question for Kip 2. If you could have dinner with anyone who's ever lived in Indiana, whom would you choose? Lee Hamilton. Living or dead? Yeah, Lee Hamilton. I think he's our greatest politician, greatest. He's still living. He said living or dead, he's still alive. Yeah. Yeah. I could probably have it if I worked hard enough at it, but I just think he's <laughs> I think he's uh, uh, one of the most brilliant statement, statesmen we've ever had in state. So we've tried I, to get him on the podcast without luck, but we've had a couple people reach out to him. He's a terrific, terrific public servant. Yep. Would you choose Kurt Vonnegut? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, there's, there's, oh man, it's those, those questions are impossible. That's why we there's, ask them. There's so many. There's so many interesting people in the world. There's an author that both Kip and I really love, named Jess Walter. Who I've just, actually had dinner with Jess Walter. <laughs> you want to just end on that note? <laughs> sure. Thank you for listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guests have been Chris Lafave, curator, the Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library, and the wonderful, delightful, and talented, lovely. Oh my God, Kip too. Kip, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and making this happen. I reached out to you a long time ago, and I'm glad we could finally make it. Well, I I thank you for helping highlight one of the great treasures in Indianapolis, so we appreciate it. Thank you both. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Strategies.com.